What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the tracks. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, hey, guys. Hey, hey Joe. Joe. How you doing today? I'm... Well, pretty okay. How would you be doing if there was no blood in your body? Less well. Uh, yeah, pretty poorly yeah. overall. I yeah. mean, blood is pretty awesome for keeping us alive. Uh, it's kind of and- integral for that whole oxygen carbon dioxide exchange thing that we depend upon so much for life. Uh, also kind of squishy. I mean, without blood, we would be significantly less squishy. Less voluminous, maybe? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, we'd probably be a little more like, a, you know, raisins and be kind of... Ew. Weird. Yeah. You what? crossed the line, Jonathan. Why, okay. why do you ask, Joe? <laughs> well, today we wanted to talk about blood and the future of blood and why blood is awesome and very interesting, perhaps even more interesting than you might realize, even if you are a vampire. Yes. Or, uh, as you have mentioned in the notes, a certain uh, Elizabeth Bathory. 
Although that a lot of the the legends attributed to her are possibly apocryphal. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we I don't think we actually have historical proof that she bathed in blood, but she was a countess who did many, many horrible things. And why are we talking about her on this podcast? Maybe we shouldn't. Uh, well, because <laughs> because it leads into another cool cross promotional opportunity, Joe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Bathory is not the only one who might have bathed in blood. Right. Uh, Our I... own Lauren Vogelbaum has bathed in blood on oh, video. Okay, that's look, right. It wasn't a bath. It, it was, was more like a shower. And it wasn't oh, okay. wasn't voluntary, right? <laughs> you were being splashed by it. Uh, and it wasn't real blood. It was fake stage blood. Right. Um, but, but it was all because you did a show on, on Brain Stuff, an episode on Brain Stuff where you participated in an episode that was all about blood and why it's red, right? Uh, correct. Yeah, it was, it was about the color of blood and uh, the different chemicals in different creatures that create colors of blood. And in order to do all of this, we really wanted Dr. Anton Jessup, who is a host over on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, our resident monster expert. Indeed. He is from the university basement. Yes. Um, and and uh, he he had an experiment to run. Um, I was there in a prom dress. And, <laughs> you know, he stuff was happened. trying to encourage your telekinetic powers. Yeah. O- opportunity knocked and Dr. Jessup answered. Yeah. And, so and thus we have the video. If you all haven't checked out the YouTube channels for brain stuff and for stuff to blow your mind, you, you definitely should. They got great stuff going on there. And Lauren, one more question before we get into the oh, future of blood. Yes. Surely in your brain stuff video, you concluded that the reason blood appears blue through your skin is because when blood is deoxygenated, it turns blue, right? That is so completely incorrect. What? Uh, no, no. Blood is always red, even when it is inside your body. Isn't it? It is an optical illusion that it looks blue in your veins. It's it's how light scatters through your skin. And uh, and it is a darker, deeper red when it's in your veins. However, it's still red. But, so, so you're telling me that all those British blue bloods are, are actually red bloods? They're totally red blood. Oh, we're all red Unless bloods, Jonathan. Unless they're actually telekinetic crab monsters, in which case their blood is probably blue because a lot of other creatures, like, for example, cephalopods, and crustaceans do have blue blood. Huh. Wow. Well, we're well, going to focus on human blood. Yeah. We, tomorrow is when we record the podcast about the crab monsters. Yeah. Today, so let's, let's we need to talk blood. about blood technology. Uh, so there's actually a really fascinating future around blood. And one of the first things we wanted to talk about was the idea of artificial blood. So before we get into the actual science, I have to I know that we've just been doing tangents all the way leading up into this <laughs> podcast. But this this is one of those things where the first time I really uh, started thinking about artificial blood was when I watched a, a super cheesy horror movie. Have you guys ever seen Sundown, the Vampire in Retreat? I have not. It's the vampire in retreat. Yes. Not the vampire retreat like it's a resort that they go to. Well, it's almost like that because <laughs> the idea is that the vamp that, that there's a colony of vampires who have settled a town in 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 the west and it's kind of a vampire uh western mashup movie and uh Bruce Campbell plays the uh, descendant of Van Helsing in this. Um, and, uh, I believe, uh, David Carradine is the leader of the vampires. Oh, wow. Uh, the, yeah. That sounds high class all, all around. Phenomenal. Have I, I never heard about this? Know, phenomenal right? movie. I saw it when it was on cable back in oh. the, you know, nineties or something. But anyway, uh, 
the plot of the movie partially revolves around the fact that that the vampire colony is made up of two different camps, and one camp is trying to get away from the typical vampirism thing by creating artificial blood as a blood substitute that they will drink. Therefore, they will no longer have to prey upon the living. The other camp is more like, uh, we're superior predators and we should be, you know, preying upon people. That's what we should be doing. Uh, and it was in, at the time I was thinking, huh, artificial blood. That actually would be incredibly useful, right? I mean, there's there's an actual need oh, yeah. for blood in in so many different medical procedures, not right? Just for vampires. No. So you're not just talking about artificial blood as in movie blood, something that looks like blood. You're I'm, talking about something that performs the anatomical function of blood, right? At the very least, and and for the most part, throughout history, the thing that people have been trying to develop is an artificial blood that can, in fact, uh, uh handle that oxygen carbon dioxide uh, exchange that we need in order to survive. Now, blood does other stuff, too. It's not just a vehicle for carrying oxygen and carbon dioxide. Uh, sure. but that's a big part of it, but, because yes. all of your all of your organs need oxygen in order to function. Exactly. And they get oxygen because red blood cells contain the stuff called hemoglobin that binds to the oxygen in your lungs and then proceeds to carry it throughout your bodily systems. Yeah, so exactly. And and that's the main thing that the artificial blood uh, types have been, you know, people have been trying to find something that could do that as well as blood can. And it's interesting that the history of looking into artificial blood stretches back quite a long ways to the point where we're going before um, we had a lot of scientific knowledge about blood and what it does and what it's capable of doing. So yeah. it's mostly people just saying, hey, I wonder what would happen if we put this in us instead. Well, blood is one of the four humors, right? I mean, that's still <laughs> solid science, right? And it's well, it's not solid science, but yes, it was one of the humors. Um, so if you look back to the 17th century, the 1600s, William Harvey was the first to examine the circulatory system and describe exactly how blood moves through the body. Uh, and the physicians of that day decided to experiment with various substances as blood substitutes for people who would need blood for any particular reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would include stuff like milk, beer, urine, and sheep blood. Uh, I think uh, I think beer was the really popular one. Yeah, well, beer was popular for a lot of reasons in the it was. in the 17th century. But if it's good to drink. It's good in your veins, right? Yeah, it was very much in that same. Uh, well, wait, vein. wait, 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 wait. Urine, though, urine is not good to drink. <laughs> and is sheep's blood good to drink? Uh, it's good in sausages. Um, I, uh, I'm not gonna. Blood, not urine. I'm not gonna argue either of those things. But what I am going to say is this is very closely related to that idea of bloodletting being part of the the medical procedures of the day. You know, the the idea of draining away things that were right negative or or harmful to a person uh, through leaching or letting. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so this was kind of a very primitive approach, obviously, and a lot of people who probably were not doing too well to begin with, lost their lives as a part of the process of, of trying these things. In 1667, there was actually the first successful blood transfusion. Uh, human to human. Human to human. Sheep to human. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, now, patients who would require multiple transfusions died usually during the process. And so uh, while the first one, first ones, uh, early ones were successful, it was ultimately abandoned as a practice because 
it turned out that giving people multiple transfusions would end up killing them. So that they decided that it actually did not work. Uh, yeah, I don't think that research really picked back up again until about the 1800s uh, during the uh, age of cholera. Yes. Uh, physicians would treat people who were afflicted with Asiatic cholera by injecting milk into them. Uh, the thought at the time was that the milk would help them regrow their white blood cells. Yeah. Uh, which is not correct. However, it did. Uh, but milk is white. But so... milk is white. Right. So, Thanks, Joe. I mean, <laughs> well, to, to be fair, some of the literature does suggest that perhaps it was actually helping some of the patients, uh, but there was not any real scientific inquiry as to what the mechanism was, and it didn't get a wide enough acceptance, so it was pretty much abandoned as well. So whether or not it was actually effective in treating cholera is kind of up to debate. <laughs> it was, yeah, I it think was, there are a lot of things we thought were effective. Yeah, it was one of those things where without, then. without that scientific rigor, you can't say, right? But other experiments using things like uh, salt water or saline as blood replacement seemed to be promising. There were some experiments with frogs that showed that if you were to replace a frog's blood with saline, it would continue living, which seemed really exciting until they saw that if you just remove a frog's blood entirely, yeah. it could continue living for a short while, which suggests that you could replace it with pretty much anything that's not going to be toxic, and the frog would not happily, but <laughs> but would continue to live for a little while. So then that, that excitement about saline kind of died down. So um, moving on, they started to look at using animal blood as replacement for, for humans, but Animal blood can have substances in it that are toxic to us. And at the time, the phys physicians really didn't have the ability or the equipment to figure out which elements were going to be toxic, how to remove them from mm -hmm. the blood. So they couldn't really make this an effective means of treating people without making them far more sick using something that would end up being toxic. Mm -hmm. uh, and other experiments ended up leading to things called blood volumizers, which are not the same as a blood substitute. A volumizer is something that can mix with blood safely and not be toxic and can help if you have a condition that also has like low blood pressure. Let's say that you're being treated for something and you, your blood pressure starts to drop. This would be able to bring your blood pressure back up, but the volumizer lacks any capability of handling any of the other functions of blood. So if you were, you know, you could essentially asphyxiate to death. I mean, you would die from lack of oxygen. If uh, you had too much of this in your system. Yeah, because it's but... not carrying, it's not carrying the oxygen. But yeah. if it's just, if it's one of those things where the blood pressure is a serious problem and otherwise you would be, you know, more or less okay through whatever procedure, it was a, a viable uh, approach. Uh, in small enough amounts, that kind of thing can be used until a patient's blood count gets back up. Yes. But uh, then some, some important research happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s. That's when Leopold Landsteiner discovered blood types, which made human transfusions of blood a lot more safe. Or, or I mean, they would make human transfusions of blood a lot more safe once we did a little bit more research into the, the chemistry of blood and the exact role of blood in doing all of this oxygen circulation. We've been talking about this. Obviously, no one knew that much about it until 
the early 1900s. Right. And and the World Wars really helped this research along because perhaps totally. obviously people were very interested in yeah. how to help save lives. It was um, absolutely a requirement at right, that right. time. Yeah, there's nothing like necessity to really push forward innovation, right? We've, we've heard <laughs> similar things over and over again. Oh, especially in this story. Um, then in the 1960s, the first blood substitute was developed. It was called or it is called still today, perfluorocarbons or PFCs. And these are synthetic compounds that have this huge propensity for carrying gases that have been dissolved in a liquid uh, and hence are useful for keeping oxygen flowing through a patient's body and also helping to keep their blood pressure steady, as we mentioned a moment ago. Um you know, usually until they can receive a transfusion or, again, grow back their own red blood cells. It's it's not a permanent blood substitute. Right. I've heard that while it's capable of holding quite a bit of oxygen, it's not as efficient at transferring it as hemoglobin is. So right. it's, it's one of those things that can be used to uh, supplement but not replace uh, uh, someone's blood. Uh, yes, I think I think blood supplement is what I intended to say instead of blood substitute. But <laughs> uh, and, and, and this research at the time, I don't think was quite in humans yet. They, they were doing a bunch of research in mice. And uh, unfortunately, for, for the research at the time, the blood bank system that had been established thanks to the world wars was working really well. And the, the risks in human trials were so steep that it was basically abandoned until the late 1970s and early 1980s when a Vietnam happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the country is always happening, I suppose. But uh, the when, 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 the, when the Vietnam <laughs> War happened, yes. Um, whereupon a bunch of the blood bank system proved to be unstable for large scale disaster. And also, it was discovered that viruses like hepatitis and the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, could be spread by blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. So that was a terrifying time for everyone. And PFCs were developed for human use and, and went onto the market. They've never actually been very popular or commercially viable, which in medical research is very important because, as we said in a recent episode, it's very expensive to bring stuff like this to the market, mostly because a whole lot of PFCs are required in order to really do any good in your system. Like like you were saying, Jonathan, they don't they're not extremely efficient at delivering oxygen Mm -hmm. Um, and they can cause a lot of adverse side effects after use, especially in the vascular systems of the lungs and the brain. Important parts people tend to want to keep using yeah Yeah. so um then in in the 1990s as it was kind of being discovered that pfcs might not be the best stuff a another class of substitute was developed and that was hemoglobin based oxygen carriers or hbocs and these guys are, are interesting because they're made from real, actual, sterilized hemoglobin, being, of course, the, the compound that carries the oxygen around in your blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this hemoglobin from either human blood or cow blood or from bacteria that we have genetically modified in order to produce it, which I find fascinating. Um, but the thing is, is that you can't just stick hemoglobin in your bloodstream and expect it to function. When it's in a red blood cell, it does its job really well. But when it's just kind of floating around, it breaks down very quickly into really quite toxic compounds. Yeah. So so HBOCs have to contain the hemoglobin some way. And it's so much of a problem that none have ever been approved by the FDA. Mm. As far as I know, the only places that they've been licensed for, for medical use are in 
South African hospitals, uh, which had a pretty huge AIDS crisis that put the blood supply at risk, and also in Russia. However, there there's some recent research that is making it seem more and more viable as a solution. There, there's some people at the University of Essex are engineering hemoglobin molecules combined with the amino acid tyrosine, which they say can enable a patient's body to break the stuff down more safely. Uh, and they just received some like 1.5 million pounds in funding. That's pretty heavy. To pursue it. So I see what you did there. Mm, thank yeah. you. Pounds the currency. <laughs> the pounds the Not currency. Pounds yes. of hemoglobin. Globin. Man, you are so good at saying hemoglobin. I keep wanting to say hemoglobin, which is one of the <laughs> most terrifying creatures in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. You know, right. And when you actually manage to hit that critical blow, they just explode in blood. Oh, that's gross. That's gross. Uh, OK, so backing away from exploding blood <laughs> okay. monsters. Uh, what's really cool about all of all of these these potential blood substitutes is that they're shelf stable for like up to two years, which is a big improvement over carrying around jars of human blood, which you you have. Well, I mean, a it's probably not in jars, but but B, you have to keep refrigerated. <laughs> Otherwise, it will go very bad very quickly um, and be useless. And, and furthermore, they are not dependent on blood type. So you can just keep them out in the field where where we need them in case of emergency. Mm, gotcha. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, uh, unlike this Bruce Campbell movie you were talking about mm-hmm. or like True Blood, mm-hmm. it's not really blood. Uh, but that's OK, because I mean, because the ent- entire idea of anyone drinking blood is completely crazy, right? Uh, I would imagine so. I mean, I can't. I, there's no scientific basis for consuming blood or anything like that, right? Well... <laughs> Joe, I knew there was a reason we brought you along. <laughs> Maybe not drinking blood. Okay. Well, that that's somewhat of a relief. But there have been some really interesting scientific findings, especially in the past few years, that prove that young blood is delicious and will make you immortal. <laughs> well, I know that companies are always looking for young blood to keep things going, but I think that's kind of metaphorical. No, the liquid. The blood uh, okay, they're the actually actual from a young, healthy young... Invi- individual. All right, tell me more, Joe. Well, okay, so I was overstating. It won't actually make you immortal, as far as we know. And I, I totally take back the delicious part. I'm sure that it's <laughs> disgusting. I, I, I bet. I don't know. Joe has never drank human blood. That's what I'm saying. Anyway, let's <laughs> let's move on. Um, no, seriously, here are the facts. So, multiple experiments have shown that in mice. Young blood has measurable rejuvenating effects. So wait, you mean like you get like a, a mouse that's a, you know a geriatric mouse, and you give it a transfusion of young mouse blood, and and things change for the old mouse? That is exactly what I'm seeing. What? You can take young blood from a young mouse, give it to an older mouse, and you see broad, widespread, and significant health benefits. Huh. Uh, on one hand, this sounds totally crazy and Frankenstein-y, right? <laughs> Like, you know, the premise of a poorly researched sci-fi movie is just so, part of what's creepy about it is how simple it is, right? Yeah. You just take the young blood, put it in the old animal, health benefits. Sounds fake. It's absolutely true. And it kind of makes sense. So when we age, part of what's happening to us is that there's a marked decline in our body tissue's ability to regenerate itself, right? Sure. It's, it's becomes harder for us to make the new cells we need to stay young. 
So if you just think about this in trivial terms, it's totally normal. When a young child gets an injury, you know, has a skateboarding accident, gets all scuffed up and stuff, that heals pretty quick. If you think about an adult getting a comparable injury, suddenly that thing that's no big deal on a kid is a big deal on an adult. It takes Mm -hmm. a lot longer to heal. It's just generally more debilitating. Oh, man, this is a problem. And so that we suspect that over time, aging does something to the functioning of stem cells in our body that are responsible for growing new tissue. But the question is exactly what's happening and is there any way to reverse it? Uh, so uh, there was actually a really great article about this that came out in New Scientist just a couple of days ago on uh, August 20th. And a lot of what I'm citing here I learned about through that. So there's this process called heterochronic parabiosis. Okay. Uh, I recognize some of those syllables, but what is that exactly? Uh, para- I hope I'm pronouncing this right. It's either uh, parabiosis or parabiosis. I don't know. That's one of those tough words. Yeah. We forgive you, Joe. Sorry. Parabiosis. P-A-R-A-B-I-O-S-I-S. Parabiosis, in this case, refers to removing skin patches from two mice and sewing the mice together. So you end up with a mega mouse. Right. Like, like Voltron of mice. <laughs> you you end up connecting their circulatory system. So in this way, the two mice share a bloodstream. Their blood becomes one common pool. Not not literally. It's actually still inside the mice. Right. But it connects. And, and these are these will be referred to as parabiotic mice. OK. So the process was first described by a French physiologist named Paul Bert, B-E-R-T. I guess it's not just Bert. No, it'd be better Paul, Paul Bert. In the 1860s, and then later in the 1930s, uh, the process was improved upon by Bunster and Meyer. And basically, as it is today, it entails attaching the two mice at parallel elbows and knees side by side, and then sewing together an exposed patch along their sides. And after some length of time, the pair can safely be separated again if necessary for the experiment. As, I, I want to put in that this is fascinating but terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, as I said, it's, it's starting to sound like something from Reanimator. Moderately <laughs> Frankenstein-y. Yeah. Uh, so, as you might guess from the name, so that's parabiosis. Okay. As okay. you might guess from the name, heterochronic parabiosis would mean mixed time scales. Heterochronic, mixed time. Okay. So you're creating a union of parabiotic mice where one mouse is old and the other mouse is young. So what's really striking about heterochronic parabiosis in mice is that the old mouse seems to benefit greatly from the blood of the young. Unfortunately, the young mice ended up getting no benefit at all and were obsessed with murder, she wrote. (laughs) You ageist. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm just saying. I guess you are the oldest person here. You you can make those jokes. It's okay for him. In the 1950s, a researcher at Cornell named Clive McKay uh, performed experiments with parabiosis in a quest to learn about prolonging the lifespan of mammals. McKay and his associates found that old mice who underwent the procedure showed rejuvenated cartilage. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the cartilaginous tissue in their body actually appeared younger after they had been joined to a younger mouse. And more recently, a team led by the Stanford researcher Thomas A. Rando has continued research in this area. They published a study in Nature in 2005 and they showed that after five weeks of heterochronic parabiosis, older mice showed improved rates of muscle healing and liver cell regeneration. Wow. Was there any other sort of improvements in, in this kind of? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Basically, 
almost everything we've looked at gets better with young blood. So there's the brain. Uh, multiple research projects have showed positive cognitive and neurological effects of young blood on older mice. Just one example uh, was published this May, May of 2014, in Nature Medicine. And it was a team including Saul Villeda and Tony Wiscore. And they made the bold claim, and this is actually a quote from the abstract of their paper, that, quote, Exposure of an aged animal to young blood can counteract and reverse pre-existing effects of brain aging at the molecular, structural, functional, and cognitive level. So the that's the end of the quote, but that's the entire gamut. So they found really measurable physical improvements in the brain. The, the brain structure has got stronger, including synaptic plasticity, which is a big deal. And then at like the zoomed out level... They saw improvements in the cognitive function that you can measure with behavioral tests. So the older mice with cognitive impairments saw improvement in things like memory and spatial learning, all from young mouse blood. Wow. Then there was the heart. Research led by the Harvard scientist Amy Wagers, who, by the way, has also done important work on the brain effects I just mentioned and on identifying the cause of these effects in general, which I'm about to talk about in a minute. But uh, research out of her lab found that when you introduce young mouse blood into older mice, it can reduce the cumulative prevalence of cardiac hypertrophy. So as we get older, our hearts get bigger. They grow larger and thicker. And that's not good. It leads to heart failure. Uh, right. You want it to be you want the muscle to be to be spry and right. thin. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so when you perform the heterochronic parabiosis between an older mouse with cardiac hypertrophy with a young, healthy mouse, Wagers found that the older mouse's heart shrinks to nearly the size of the younger mouse's heart. So just having wow. the younger mouse's blood going through that circulatory system fixes the heart. The heart shrinks back to pretty much the size of a typical younger, healthy mouse. This this is not sounding any less like crazy science fiction. Do, <laughs> do, do these researchers have any idea of what's causing all of this? Yeah, they have a pretty good idea. So uh, I, I mentioned this a second ago, in mice... Some research has pointed to uh, the role of a protein found in mouse blood called growth differentiation factor 11, or GDF11. <laughs> uh, one reason for thinking it's involved is that GDF11 seems to be present in much greater volume in the blood of younger mice than it is in the blood of older mice. Uh, experiments have shown in isolation that GDF11 alone has some powerful rejuvenating effects. So separated from the blood, just this protein can accomplish something, though I believe in at least some cases, the effect of GDF11 alone is not quite as great as the effects of the direct blood plasma exchange. Okay. So though GDF11 seems to be a major factor or even the main factor in these effects, there's probably more to this effect than just one chemical we can isolate. In a quote given to new scientist Saul Valeta said, counteracting aging may prove to be a combination of inhibiting aging factors and increasing youthful factors. Uh, but all in mice so far. Right. Is, I mean, I, I mean, good for the mice. Sure, but, yeah. But, yeah. But can I do that? That's what I was wondering, too. You were wondering if Lauren could do that? I'm wondering if all of us can do it. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I want to, I, I want... To live forever. Come on. I've, by the way, I've, I've reversed my position on this. Yeah. Yeah. You do a while back, y'all were like, yeah, we want to live forever. And I was like, nah, I thought about it. And I was like, eh, might as well take it. <laughs> yeah. 
let's let's just let's just go with that. See maybe, how it goes. Uh, maybe not forever. Play it out for a millennia right. or two. All right, exactly. Well, yeah, we'd roll with it. Okay. Well, so, what's the future of of this as far as it relates to humans? Yes, good question. So we are probably going to find out if this same thing can work on humans within the next few years. Wow. We're not sewing people together, are we? No, no, no. Fortunately, we do Maybe not have to. Maybe that's what Human Centipede was really about. Oh, no, it really no. wasn't. I saw that movie. Lauren, <laughs> this podcast room is a safe place where we don't talk about that movie. Come on. Or its sequel? No, none <laughs> okay. of it. None right. of it. Fair enough. Sorry. Please continue. Okay. So we don't have to undergo parabiosis to see if the same benefits occur in humans. Uh, to test this, we can just try professionally administered blood or plasma transfusions Mm -hmm. Um, now don't try this at home please please seriously you can mess up a blood transfusion you try to do it yourself it's not a good idea yeah it would be it would be this should be performed by professionals under laboratory conditions where they're controlling all of the factors and people know what they're doing Yes. yes so don't get carried away these effects are really exciting but please don't do anything stupid what what about the straight up vampire method? <laughs> oh, you mean drinking blood? Yeah. Uh, no. Well, here's another quote that was actually given to the new scientist by uh, by Wiscore, one of the scientists I mentioned from the earlier study. He said, quote, certainly you can't drink the blood, although obviously we haven't tried that experiment. <laughs> now, well, that's amusing. I will Which, point out. Uh, I will point out it, something it, else. It just seems like that must have been the question on everybody's mind. Here's something else. Just just to kind of uh, give a little more detail there. So human blood uh, would be toxic for us to consume in large amounts. The reason sure. reason being is that blood has a lot of iron in it. Our bodies are not very good at getting rid of excess iron. We need some iron, but mm-hmm. to have too much is going to lead to something called hemochromatosis. And that is not good. Mm-hmm. So it actually is toxic. So uh, f- while we're joking about this, clearly that would never be even even if we were to make completely synthetic human blood that is otherwise indistinguishable from the naturally made blood, we would never consume it because it would be toxic to us. Right. So we're talking about giving people plasma transfusions yes. generally or also another option to test would be this GDF-11 protein in isolation, because Mm -hmm. as we've discussed in mice, it might not have the full range of effects or the intensity we see in the the total blood, the direct blood sharing, but that it might have some really important and majorly significant effects on its own. But this research truly is coming right up. Uh, Wiscore himself is apparently looking into soon initiate a human trial to see if injecting young blood plasma into people with Alzheimer's can relieve symptoms of the disease or even reverse its process. Oh. And they're starting this experiment this October. Ah. So next month. Yeah. That's so cool. So and be, what, are, what are we going to find out? I don't know, but yeah. I think this is really exciting. On the other hand, we want to urge caution. Don't try anything at home and don't get carried away because there's a lot left. We need to learn about this before. Oh, sure. w- right. I'm not just saying, yes, we've discovered the fountain of youth, but well, especially since, you know, time and time again, 
we've discovered that something that is applicable to a different organism is not applicable to humans. Right. So it may very well turn out that something that does work within mice will not translate into into humans. It doesn't mean that we won't find some alternative to that down the road. Oh, sure. But we can never we can never just assume that because we see something work in one organism, it is universal. Uh, especially right. with anything as complicated as blood, which really does have a, a lot of a lot of protein and cellular function and intercellular function going on so there's there's a lot more again than just just any one or two things right well and apart from artificial blood and apart from this idea of using blood transfusions in in novel ways in the medical world there's also within the future of blood the potential for lab grown blood yeah creating blood in the laboratory um and in fact we are seeing a a an experiment kind of ramping up right now in which volunteers uh, will opt to receive blood cultured from stem cells in 2016. So it's a couple of years away for this to actually happen, but the, the groundwork is being laid right now for this to become a reality. So the basic idea is to use stem cells and, uh, and then to induce them to develop into red blood cells. Or to induce them to grow into the mesodermic layers from which red blood cells derive. Right, right. That would be, that would be more accurate. Yes. Uh, so thank you. You're welcome. But yes, that's exactly <laughs> what they're talking about. Now this, this is not, uh, a, a trivial thing. It's, uh, it takes quite a bit of delicacy to make sure that you develop your stem cells so that they properly, uh, go move into whatever form you ultimately want them to take. Uh, absolutely. And you also have to figure out how to scale that so you can get a useful amount of blood because it's one thing to develop it and get a tiny sample. Uh, where... Right. But, and, and you're not really developing whole whole blood. You're developing red blood cells yes. from this pr- procedure. Yes. And uh, and red blood cells are very small. Yeah. As it turns out, like I think I think about half a billion can be in a single drop. Uh, well, I know that if you're talking about a, a bag of blood, which is a pint, uh-huh. more or less. Essentially, uh, approximately two trillion, sorry, two yeah. trillion red blood cells are in one bag. Yeah. And the United States, we go through about 32,000 pints of blood every day in the medical world. 32,000. So two trillion times 32,000 per day. That's how many cells you would have to be manufacturing within the lab just to end up meeting that demand, which would, if you were able to do that, Frankly, you would have to go above that because if you're thinking 32,000 on average, obviously you would want to have more than that to be able Uh to take care of any emergency issues. But if you were able to do that, then theoretically you could eventually eliminate the need for things like blood banks or or blood donation because you could actually manufacture it yourself. Yeah, Yeah. and furthermore, you would be manufacturing stuff that would eliminate the risk of of disease and immune reactions transferring along with someone else's blood. And um, also you'd be eliminating the fuss that comes with having to sort out all of those blood types because you could just create all of it in O negative, which is the universal donor. Right, right. Yeah, the the issues of shortages of specific types of blood would no longer be a problem if you were able to 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 create that in the lab. Also, and this may or may not tie into Joe's point, I have no idea. You can you'd be providing young, strong cells that would have the potential to survive longer. And I I wonder 
if, yeah. if this lab if these are super fresh cells, then yeah, yeah. If, if this could be used in that kind of research, oh, that you were so you're saying about. if it does turn out that you know the key to the fountain of youth is injecting young blood into old people, we wouldn't be talking about young people coming out to donate blood. We'd be yeah. talking about growing this blood in the lab. Maybe, yeah. I mean, possibility. Uh, mm, I mean, uh, th- this is of course making a lot of assumptions. The assumption that oh, yeah. one that that the, eff- the effect we were talking about in mice does in fact occur also with humans. Uh, furthermore, that this ever becomes in any way financially viable, this right. process of growing cells. Yeah, right. if this is in fact something that can ultimately be scalable, where we could create blood in the massive volumes that we would need, then uh, it could be an amazing development for medicine. Oh, sure. I, if, if any of these blood substitutes or, or perhaps a combination of these technologies pans out at all, it, it could mean global access to, to clean, life-saving transfusion material. And some... 90 million transfusions is the number that I've read occur worldwide mm-hmm. every year. So so it, it could be a amazing for a lot of people and and b it could be a pretty huge business. I mean not to not to be crass about it, but there have been estimates that indicate that it it could drive annual sales of of over 7 billion dollars in the United States alone every year. So that means for the money people out there there's an economic incentive to invest in this research. Yeah. Blood is big business. So uh no, seriously though, this is this is one of those things that clearly uh I'm very excited to see where the the research leads us to. And uh the potential benefits are it's it's difficult to exaggerate how world changing this could potentially be. So we hope that uh, that the promising research bears fruit. We will keep an eye on that. And meanwhile, to our listeners out there, if you have any suggestions, maybe there's some topic that you've always wanted to know more about as far as the future goes, you should let us know. Uh, maybe you want Jonathan to get covered in blood in a video of his own. Uh, you would not be the first person to uh, have suggested such a thing. So feel free. You can drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+. Our handle at all three is FWThinking. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.